Chapter Three, Part One, of the Uttermost Farthing. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The Uttermost Farthing by R. Austin Freeman. Chapter Three, The Housemaid's Followers, Part One. The contrast in effect between suspicion and certainty is very curious to observe. When I had walked through the private museum of my poor friend Challoner and had looked at the large collection of human skeletons that it contained, a suspicion that there was something queer about those skeletons had made me quite uncomfortable. Now, after reading his first narrative, I knew all about them. They were the relics of criminals whom he had taken red-handed and preserved for the instruction of posterity. Thus were my utmost suspicions verified, and yet, strange as it may seem, with the advent of certainty, my horror of them vanished. Even the hideous little doll-like heads induced but a passing shudder. Vague, half-superstitious awe gave place to scientific interest. I took an early opportunity of renewing my acquaintance with the astonishing and gruesome museum archives. The second narrative was headed, Anthropological Series 2, 3, and 4. It exhibited the same singular outlook as the first, showing that to Challoner the criminal had not appeared to be a human being at all, but merely a subhuman form, anatomically similar to man. The acquisition of specimen number one, it began, gave me considerable occupation, both bodily and mental. As I labored from day to day, rendering the osseous framework of the late James Archer fit for exhibition in a museum case, I reflected on the future to which recent events had committed me. I had been, as it were, swept away on the tide of circumstance. The death of this person had occurred by an inadvertence, and accident had thrown on me the onus of disposing of the remains. I had solved that difficulty by converting the deceased into a museum specimen. So far, well, but what of the future? My wife had been murdered by a criminal. The remainder of my life, short, I hoped, was to be spent in seeking that criminal. But the trap that I had set to catch him would probably catch other criminals first and since the available method of identification could not be applied to newly acquired specimens while in the living state it followed that each would have to be reduced to the condition in which identification would be possible and if on inspection the specimen acquired proved to be not the one sought i should have to add it to the collection and rebate the trap that was evidently the only possible plan but before embarking on it i had to consider its ethical bearings of the legal position there was no question. It was quite illegal. But that signified nothing. There are recent human skeletons in the Natural History Museum. Every art school in the country has one, and so have many board schools. What is the legal position of the owners of those human remains? It will not bear investigation. As to the Hunterian Museum, it is a mere resurrectionist legacy. That the skeleton of O'Brien was obtained by flagrant body-snatching is a well-known historical fact, but one at which the law, very properly, winks. Obviously the legal position was not worth considering. But the ethical position? To me it looked quite satisfactory, though clearly at variance with accepted standards. For the attitude of society towards the criminal appears to be that of a community of stark lunatics. In effect, society addresses the professional criminal somewhat thus— you wish to practice crime as a profession, to gain a livelihood by appropriating, by violence or otherwise, the earnings of honest and industrious men. Very well. You may do so on certain conditions. 
If you are skillful and cautious, you will not be molested. You may occasion danger, annoyance, and great loss to honest men with very little danger to yourself, unless you are clumsy and incautious, in which case you may be captured. If you are, we shall take possession of your person, and detain you for so many months or years. During that time you will inhabit quarters better than you are accustomed to. Your sleeping-room will be kept comfortably warm in all weathers. You will be provided with clothing better than you usually wear. You will have a sufficiency of excellent food. Expensive officials will be paid to take charge of you. Selected medical men will be retained to attend to your health. A chaplain, of your own persuasion, will minister to your spiritual needs, and a librarian will supply you with books. And all this will be paid for by the industrious men whom you live by robbing. In short, from the moment that you adopt crime as a profession, we shall pay all your expenses, whether you are in prison or at large. Such is the attitude of society, and I repeat it is that of a community of madmen. How much better and more essentially moral is my plan? I invite the criminal to walk into my parlour. He walks in, a public nuisance and a public danger, and he emerges in the form of a museum preparation of permanent educational value. Thus I reflected, and mapped out my course of action as I worked at what I may call the foundation specimen of my collection. The latter kept me busy for many days, but I was very pleased with the result when it was finished. The bones were of a good color and texture. The fracture of the skull, when carefully joined with fish glue, was quite invisible, and, as to the little dried preparation of the head, it was entirely beyond my expectations. Comparing it with the photographs taken after death, I was delighted to find that the facial characters, and even the expression, were almost perfectly retained. It was a red-letter day when I put number one in the great glass case, and took out the skeleton that I had bought from the dealer to occupy its place until it was ready. The substitute was no longer needed, and I accordingly dismantled it, and destroyed it piecemeal in the furnace, crushing the calcined bones into unrecognizable fragments. Meanwhile, I had been pushing on my preparations for further captures. A large mahogany-faced safe was fixed in the dining-room to contain the silver. A burglar alarm was fitted under the floor in front of the safe and connected with a trembler drum that was kept, with the concussor and a few other appliances, locked in a hanging cupboard at my bedhead, ready to be switched on and placed under my pillow at night. I secretly purchased a quantity of paste jewelry, bracelets, tiaras, pendants, and such-like glittering trash— and when everything was ready, I engaged two new servants of decidedly queer antecedents. I was at first a little doubtful about the cook, but the housemaid was a certainty from the outset. Her character, from her late reverend and philanthropic employer, urging me as a Christian man, which I was not, to give her another chance, made that perfectly clear. I gave her another chance, though not quite of the kind that the reverend gentleman meant. Two days after her arrival, I directed her to clean the plate, and handed her the key of the safe, of which I have reason to believe that she took a squeeze with a piece of dough. The sham diamonds were locked in a separate division of the safe, but I introduced them to her by taking them out in her presence, spreading them out on the table, and ostentatiously cleaning their rolled gold settings with a soft brush. They certainly made a gorgeous and glittering show. I could not have distinguished them from real diamonds— and as for Susan Slodger, that was the housemaid's name, her eyes fairly bulged with avarice. It was less than a week after this that the next incident occurred. I was lying in bed, dozing fitfully, but never losing consciousness. I slept badly at that time, 
for memories which I avoided by day would come crowding in on me in the darkness. I would think of my lost happiness, of my poor murdered wife, and of the wretch who had so lightly crushed out her sweet life as one would kill an inconvenient insect. And the thoughts filled me alternately with unutterable sadness that banished sleep, or with profound anger that urged me to seek justice and retribution. The long case clock on the stair had just struck two when the trembler drum beneath my pillow suddenly broke into a prolonged roll. Someone was standing in front of the safe in the dining room. I rose quietly, switched off the drum, replaced it in the hanging cupboard, and, taking from the same receptacle the concussor and a small leather bag filled with shot and attached to a long coil of fishing line, softly descended the stairs. On the midway landing I laid down the shot bag and paid out the coil of line as I descended the next flight. In the hall I paused for a few seconds to listen. Both the doors of the dining-room were shut, but I could hear faint sounds within. I approached the door further from the street and carefully grasped the knob. The locks and hinges I knew were thoroughly oiled, for I had attended to them daily in common with all the other doors in the lower part of the house. I turned the knob slowly and made gentle pressure on the door which presently began to open without a sound. As it opened I became aware of a low muttering, and caught distinctly the half-whispered words, "'Better try the pick first, Fred.' So there was more than one, at any rate. When the door was wide enough open to admit my head, I looked in. One burner of the gas was alight, but turned very low, though it gave enough light for me to see three men standing before the safe. Three were rather more than I had bargained for, Number one, by himself, had given me a good deal of occupation, both during and after the capture. Three might prove a little beyond my powers, and yet, if I could only manage them, they would make a handsome addition to my collection. I watched them, and turned over the ways and means of dealing with them. Evidently, the essence of the strategy required was to separate them and deal with them in detail. But how was it to be done? I watched the three men with their heads close together looking into the safe. The door stood wide open, and a key in the lock explained the procedure so far. One of the men held an electric bull's-eye lamp, the light of which was focused on the keyhole of the jewel compartment, into which another had just introduced a skeleton key. At this moment the third man turned his head. By the dim light I could see that he was looking, with a distinctly startled expression, in my direction. In fact, I seemed to meet his eye but knowing that I was in complete darkness in the shadow of the door, I remained motionless. "'Fred,' he whispered hoarsely, "'the door's open.' The other two men looked round sharply, and one of them, presumably Fred, retorted gruffly, "'Then go and shut it, and don't make no bloomin' row.' The man addressed felt in his pocket, and advanced stealthily across the room. His feet were encased in list slippers, and his tread was perfectly noiseless. As he approached I backed away, and grasping the newel post of the staircase gave it a sharp pull, whereat the whole of the balusters creaked loudly. Then I slipped behind the curtain that partly divided the hall, poised the concussor as a golf player poises his club, and gathered in the slack of the fishing line. The burglar's head appeared dimly in silhouette against the faint light from within. He listened for a moment, and then peered out into the dark hall. The opportunity seemed excellent if I could only lure him a little farther out. In any case, he must not be allowed to retire and shut the door. I gave a steady pull at the fishing line. The shot bag slid over the carpet on the landing above, 
with a sound remarkably like that of a stealthy footstep. The burglar looked up sharply and raised his hand, and against the dimly lighted wall of the dining-room I saw the silhouette of a pointed revolver. The practice of carrying firearms seems to be growing amongst the criminal classes, perhaps by reason of the increasing number of American criminals who visit this country. At any rate, the matter should be dealt with by appropriate legislation. The burglar then stood looking out, with his revolver pointed up the stairs. I was about to give another tweak at the fishing line, when an unmistakable creak came from the upper stairs. I think this somewhat reassured my friend, for I heard him mutter that he supposed it was the damn girls. He stepped cautiously outside the door, and fumbling in his pocket, produced a little electric bull's-eye, the light of which he threw up the stairs. The opportunity was perfect. Against the circle of light produced by his lamp his head stood out black and distinct, its back towards me, one outstanding ear serving to explain what I may call the constructive details of the flat, dark shape. With my left hand I silently held aside the curtain, and took a careful aim. Remembering the mishap with number one, I selected the right periental eminence, an oblique impact on which would be less likely to injure the base of the skull than a vertical blow. But I put my whole strength into the stroke, and when the padded weight descended on the spot selected, the burglar doubled up, as if struck by lightning. The impact of the concussor was silent enough, but the man fell with a resounding crash, and the revolver and lamp flew from his hands and rattled noisily along the floor of the hall. The instant I had struck the blow, I ran lightly up the hall and softly turned the knob of the farther door. Fortunately, the two men in the room were too much alarmed to rush out into the hall, or, with the aid of their lamp, they would have seen me, but they were extremely cautious. I thrust my head in at the door, and from the dark end of the room I could see them peering out of the other door, and listening intently. After a short interval they tiptoed out into the hall, and I lost sight of them. Close to the farther door was a large, fourfold Japanese screen. It had sheltered me in my last adventure, and I thought it might do so again, as the prostrate burglar was lying a couple of yards past the opening of the door, and his two friends were probably examining him. Accordingly, I stepped softly along the room, and took up a position behind the screen in a recess of the folds. My movements had evidently been unobserved, and my new position enabled me to peep out into the hall, at some risk of being seen, and hear all that passed. For the moment there was nothing to hear but a faint rustling from the two men and an occasional creak from the upper stairs. But presently I caught a hoarse whisper. "'Damn funny! He seems to be dead!' "'Yes, he do look like it,' the other agreed, and then added optimistically, "'But perhaps he's only took queer.' "'Damn!' was the impatient rejoinder. "'I tell yer he's dead. Dead as a pork-chop.' There was another silence, and then, in yet a softer whisper, a voice asked, "'Do you think somebody's been and done him in, Fred?' "'Don't see no marks,' answered Fred. "'Besides, there ain't no one here. Hello, what's that?' That was a loud creak on the upper stairs near the first-floor landing, doubtless emanating from Miss Lodger or the cook. I have no doubt that these sounds of stealthy movement were highly disturbing to the burglars, especially in the present circumstances. And so it appeared, for the answer came in an obviously frightened whisper, "'There's someone on the stairs, Fred. Look, let's hook it. This job ain't no class.' "'What?' was the indignant reply. "'Hook it and leave all that stuff? Not me.' nor you neither. There's more in what one of us can carry, 
and you put away that barker, or else you'll be letting it off and bringing in the coppers, do you hear? Ain't going to be done in in the dark, same as what Joe's been, the other whispered sulkily. If anyone comes down here, I bought some. At this moment there was another very audible creak from above, then followed rapidly a succession of events which I subsequently disentangled, but which, at the time, were involved in utter confusion. What actually happened was that Fred had begun boldly to ascend the stairs, in some way missing the fishing line, and being closely followed by his more nervous comrade. The latter, less fortunate, caught his foot in the line, stumbled, tightened the line, and brought the shot-bag hopping down the stairs. What I heard was the sound of the stumble, followed by the quick thud-thud of the descending shot-bag, exactly resembling the footfalls of a heavy man running down the stairs barefoot. Then came two revolver shots in quick succession, a shower of plaster, a hoarse cry, a heavy fall, and, from above, a loud scuffling, followed by the slamming of a door and the noisy turning of a key. A brief interval of silence, and then a quavering whisper. "'I ain't it, your Fred, have I?' To this question there was no answer but a gurgling groan. I stepped out from my hiding-place, passed through the open doorway, and stole softly along the hall, guided by the sound of the survivor extricating himself from his fallen comrade. A few paces from him I halted with the concussor poised ready to strike, and listened to his fumbling and scuffling. Suddenly a bright light burst forth. He had found Fred's electric lantern, which was, oddly enough, uninjured by the fall. It had a metal filament, as I subsequently ascertained. The circle of light from the bull's-eye, quivering with the tremor of the hand which held the lantern, embraced the figure of the injured burglar, huddled up in a heap at the foot of the stairs, and still twitching at intervals. It could not have been a pleasant sight to his companion. The greenish-white face, with its staring eyes and blood-stained lips, stood out in the bright light from its background of black darkness, with the vivid intensity of some ghastly waxwork. End of chapter 3, part 1